0: If you have your Bibles, Matthew 11, verse 25, Matthew 11, verse 25, we've been going through the book of Matthew forever now, and um, if you're new here, um, you know, the, the book of Matthew is one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it talks about the, uh, talks about Jesus' life and resurrection and his ministry, and um, all the Gospels have kind of a different point of view of, of Jesus and um, tell different stories, and some of them have some overlap, and so we're going through it. So Matthew eleven twenty-five 25 starts like this. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, and revealed them to uh, revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Now, let me give you a little background information. If you're not familiar with the Christian faith, here's what the, the Bible tells us about ourselves. It says that each one of us are born spiritually blind. Meaning we cannot see God, not just visibly see him, but like we, we don't want to know him. We don't want to be in a relationship with him. We don't want to see who he is. We don't want to acknowledge maybe his existence, or at least we don't want to acknowledge that he has some authority and reign over our life. And so uh, our disposition naturally is that we are going to reject and we are going to try to um, um, uh, uh, keep ourselves away from, we're in rebellion against God. And so what this is saying here is, it's saying that God reveals himself to some people, meaning he, he heals them of their spiritual blindness, he allows them to see who he is, and then other people, he does not heal them, or he hides himself from them. Now, if you're reading this, the first thing that we think, and this is kind of a Western American thing, is that's not fair. Because think about what's happening here is God allows certain people to know him and be in a relationship with him. And others, he continues to allow them to be blind and he hides from them. This is pretty big stuff. That's pretty, pre, that's pretty serious to not know your creator. And this has implications for our, our future, for our present, and also our destiny. And we think we deserve to know God. That's not fair, God. Why would you hide yourself from certain people and yet allow other people to know you. That that doesn't seem fair. God, I thought you were supposed to be just. I thought you were supposed to be perfect. Why would you allow this to happen? And it's because we have this assumption that we deserve to know God, that we deserve to be in a relationship with God. But it doesn't really make sense, because if you put this idea in just a regular context in our life, um, we don't make this assumption. So, for example, you and I do not get fired up that Justin Timberlake doesn't want to hang out, right? Or fill in the blank for your favorite celebrity. Who is it? Justin Bieber? (laughs) Okay. No? I don't know. I went JT because that's like my generation, but I don't know where you're at. What do you guys got? JT? You're still JT? Yeah. Who is like? I try to ask some people who are younger than me. I'm like, hey, who's your like, who is the celebrity? You know, like who is the representative of your generation? For me, Justin Timberlake. Who's it for you? Justin Timberlake, okay, God bless you. Anybody else? Anybody else want to try and play a game? No? Okay, good. Thanks for thanks for playing, everybody. All right, here we go. Oh, I got a snort. Bet you that was Lauren. Gotcha. Um, Jesus. Good. That's cute. Okay. <laughs> but see, you and I aren't aren't upset that Justin Timberlake doesn't want a relationship with us. In fact, we kind of realize, look, he's pretty important. He's got a lot going on in his life. Um, We don't deserve to know him. We haven't done anything that he would acknowledge us. And so when we apply this to God, it feels like God would be a little bit more important than Justin Timberlake. And yet we understand that we don't deserve a relationship with JT, and yet we don't realize that we also don't deserve a relationship with JC. Did you see what I did there? (laughs) You're welcome. Okay, anyway. So the point is that God doesn't have to, does not have to be in a relationship with us. He doesn't have to reveal himself to us. There is nothing in us or about us that, that deserves to know our creator. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The scripture tells us that we are rebellious sinners. And so not only do we not deserve a relationship with him, but we deserve to be rejected by him. Now, this is a harsh reality, but this is the truth of the scripture. But it also says that God does not just leave us all blind and cosmic orphans, but he reveals himself to a specific group of people. And in this context, he says it is little children. And in fact, this is a thing that we hear over and over, that Jesus um, wants our faith to be like a child, And obviously, this is figurative language here. He's not talking about, uh, literally, he only talks to children. No, no, no. Of course, he's talking about um, a descriptive, kind of uh, a description of who this type of person is that can know God. And so he contrasts the two. He says, there is the the wise and learned, and there is the children. And the wise and the learned, they will never know God. But the people who are like little children, they can come into a relationship with God. So what does he mean by this? The wise and the learner are people who um, believe that they know it all, that they're smart, they understand how the world works. In fact, um, they don't need God. God might be the problem. They are self-sufficient. They can do this life on their own. And he contrasts that with uh, little children. And by the way, when I think about this, when I think about little children and I think about the wise, um, when when I think about the wise, I think about us as teenagers, around 16, I don't know if you were like this or not, but at 16, I was sure that I had it all figured out. My parents, idiots. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand. You know, parents just don't understand, right? That was, a will, that was fresh, Prince. Thank you. All my 25s and ups. Thank you. All right. Love you guys. Okay. God, how did I get so old? Every time I... When I here's what I realized recently. This is nothing to do it tonight, but I realized this recently. The 30-something is... It's getting, it's getting hard, okay? Because I make jokes and then the 18, 19, 20-year-olds go, okay, dad, you know, I, pfft, lame. Ah, it's painful. It's painful. I'm still good looking though, so it's fine. Okay. Uh, where was I? Oh, yes, little children. All right. So we got the wise and the learned and then we've got the little children. And what he means by little children is he doesn't mean that Christian should be childish. Of course, that's not what he means what he means is that we should have a childlike faith. And there's a couple attributes that I think are analogous to the Christian faith that children have. The first one is children know that they are helpless. My kids, they are helpless half the time. When their legs get tired, you know what they do? Just fall on the ground. Somebody carry me. Can you imagine if that's how we acted? I want to all the time. I want to just be like, I'm done. (laughs) Okay, someone take me. No, but The the kids, they don't care. They're like, yeah, I'm helpless. Or when they don't want to eat dinner and they're too tired, you know what they do? Feed me. What, feed me? Okay, can I have that please? What if I, Amy, feed me, put food in here please. You know, like that would be awesome. But they are totally helpless. The best example of this is uh, my daughter who is potty trained cannot wipe herself. And so she's like, I need a wipe. I went poo poos And I'm like, oh, you are helpless. <laughs> like, this is, is, and they don't care. They're totally helpless, and they're fine with admitting it. In fact, I'm pretty sure they like it. I think she could figure it out, but she doesn't want to. And that's what it means to be a Christian, is to realize you're helpless. You can't do this on your own. You don't, want to, you don't, you don't have any illusions to who you are. You swallow your pride. You reject self-sufficiency, and you say, God, I realize I'm helpless. I can't live this life on my own. I screw this up every way that I go. And so in humility, I have to bow down and say, I'm helpless. The second thing is that they are confident you love them. So while Amy was out of town this week, um, my son and my daughter and I went to the pharmacy because I needed to stock up on my plethora of drugs. And so we went after Chick-fil-A, on our way home to the pharmacy. So we go to the pharmacy, and uh, I was telling Amy this story and she's laughing because she's like, you clearly don't go to the store very often with these children. I'm like, you're right. And I was reminded, why? Because as we're walking down the aisles, I was like, okay, you guys walk behind me, I need to pick up some drugs, and then we'll get out (laughs) of (laughs) here. And I picked up the drugs in the alley behind, no, um, (laughs) just kidding. So we're walking through the aisles, and I'm trying to find all this different stuff, and I look behind, and uh, you know how they market to children, like, the toothbrushes and stuff? So there's, like, an Anna toothbrush and an Elsa, and then, oh, there's a Mickey one. And so they have got all of them just, like, all over the floor. I'm like, man, I don't know, whatever, dude. You've, someone here will clean it up, I'm sure. <laughs> and so I'm just so tired. I don't whatever. And so we're going through, and I've, eventually I'm like, you guys are making such a mess. I'm like, Ezra, come here, hold my hand so we can get this stuff and we can get out of here. But I don't want to hold your hand, Dad like oh, okay whatever and so he falls on the ground so i pick him up and then he begins screaming as loud as he can and kicking and then trying to punch me in the face and so as he's trying to punch me in the face i'm like okay well this isn't working and so i hold him like this and so we're walking through the store and he's kicking and screaming like Aah! and people are looking at me like oh my gosh i'm like don't worry it's fine you know we're, we're figuring it out give me my drugs and so we're walking through the store, and so I'm, I'm literally shopping as I have him here, Sienna here, and it's just losing it. And I'm in sweats, by the way, because obviously, you know, it's Saturday. And, uh, <laughs> and so we're walking around, and I eventually get to the, uh, the pharmacy where I'm gonna pay for all of this stuff, and they're just looking at me like, you are such a screw up right now. You are such a loser, man. Yeah, whatever. And so we pay for the stuff and I throw them in the car and, and we get home. And, and here's how, this is exactly how children are, right? So he has just put me through hell, this child. And we drive home all of 45 seconds later, he's like, want to play? It's like, oh, you're not still mad about that whole pharmacy thing, are you? <laughs> that was so... So, like 45 seconds ago. Let's play, you know, scooter time. And this is how kids are, is they, when they are young, they have no doubt that no matter how big of a pain that they have been to you, how, how much they have ruined your day, you still love them. Like, you're not really mad. Like, you still, yeah, come on, we're fine, right? And that's what it is to be a Christian, is that we, despite all of our mistakes are still sure that God loves us. That despite what good things or bad things that we may have done, that we can still find this trust and hope that Jesus loves us. And what's interesting is you see a lot of people that are on um, kind of both sides of this. You see some people that they believe that they're sinners and they're ashamed and they can't accept God's love. They realize that they've done really bad things. And so they can't believe that God loves them. And then on the other hand, you see people who believe that God loves them because they're a good person. But see, a Christian comes along and says, well, both are partly true and both are partly false. It's true that we are sinners and that God loves us, but it's not because we're good people. It's something else. And so let's continue on because we're going we're to learn what this something else is. In verse 27, it says, all things have been committed to me by my father, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, we could go into this, and this could be a whole sermon in itself, because there's some really deep theology in here. See, what Jesus is claiming is that he has this very unique relationship with God. In fact, it's so unique that he and God are equal, but yet they're distinct, and we could go down this path and we could look at a ton of other Bible verses, but this is just one in, in uh, dozens of verses that point towards this distinction in the Godhead. This is called the Trinity. That there are three persons in one. Now, again, this is a whole sermon in itself. But this is also telling us the how part of this equation. This, the, the revelation of God, how we can know God. So one, there's a part of how we can uh, be in a relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, the way that you can know God is to know him. If you want to be in a relationship with God, then you need to be in a relationship with Jesus. Now, this is a huge claim because no one else has made this claim. No one else says, me and God, were on par. We're equals. And if you want to be in a relationship with God, you got to come through me. And we find later in the New Testament, um, this explained where the invisible God, has now been made visible through Jesus Christ. Again, some very deep theology, but that would take us forever, so we'll continue on. Here we go. Verse 28 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. When I read that this week, I said, hey, Amen. Where do my kids go while we do this, though? Like, how's that, how's that work? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus makes a couple assumptions here as he's making this pronouncement. The first assumption he makes is that we are all weary and burdened. We're tired and we need some rest. So on the surface, we all can understand why we might be tired different circumstances for, for each one of us. But some of us, were are college students, and we're tired because we've been studying, and we have exams, and maybe we're applying for grad school, and we have to declare a major, and we have no idea what we want to do with our life, and then eventually we're going to have to find a job. And, and so we're exhausted. Some of us have graduated from college, and we're entering into the workforce. We're young professionals, and and we're trying to start our career. Maybe we're trying to figure out what our career is, or we've begun our career, but of course we're at the bottom of the totem pole, and so we have to work the most amount of hours for the least amount of pay, and so it kind of stresses us out, and we don't know how to move out of our parents' house. and It's just a mess, and we're stressed. Some of us are are newlyweds, and I remember the first couple years of Amy and I's marriage. You're just trying to figure out, okay, this is is totally different. Like, I got to think about your schedule, and your wants, and your needs, and I got to check. This is totally different. And so you're just trying to figure out, how do I do this whole marriage thing. And so a lot of us, and this is just a couple arenas of our life, we have, we have relational stress, we have financial stress, we have, we have tons of different stressors in our life. And if, you, uh, if you're here tonight and you don't feel tired or weary, you will. <laughs> That's uplifting, isn't it? Because the truth is, everybody spends their life finding happiness in anticipation of what could be in the future. So you may not be weary, you may not be cynical yet, you may not be tired of all the different things that are happening in your life, but the reason that you have some current happiness or satisfaction or peace is because you have kind of put the the worry and the weariness, uh, you've put it into the future. And what I mean by this is, so many of us find peace in what could happen. Well, if I can get that job, If I can find that spouse, if I can have that car or that house or that recognition or that whatever it is, we put it in the future and we say, I'm I'm not completely fulfilled and happy and peaceful yet, but when I have these things, then I will be. And that gives us a little bit of gratification in itself, just thinking about what could be. Because we're young, we're we're kind of starry-eyed and our whole life is in front of us and we have so many things to do and accomplish and experience and, and that's great. Let me just tell you this in advance, and you may or may not believe me, but one day you will, you will realize that when you get these things, you accomplish your dreams, you have that spouse, and you get to live in that house, and whatever, you fill in the blank, that you're still not going to be there. You're still going to be tired. You're still going to be weary. You're still going to have this, this underlying feeling that you're not at peace. I mean, you can see this. Pick somebody. Pick somebody. Make someone that you know that has what you want. Do they have that fulfillment? Like when they're sitting there by themselves, are they going, this is it. I've made it. I'm totally at peace. No. Because this is just at the surface what makes us exhausted. Why we are weary. But Jesus says, you come to me and I will give you rest. See, you're still going to be longing even if you have those things. Now, don't get me wrong. Strive for those things. Those are good things, but they're not ultimate things. They're not the things that are truly going to get you what you desire. Jesus says, I have the answer for what you are looking for. You're looking for a rest that is beyond a physical or emotional rest. This rest is a soul level rest. It addresses the real reason why you are tired and you are weary. Now, Jesus, he gets into some incredibly deep and profound stuff. And so let's jump into, or let's go a little bit deeper into what's under the surface. Why are we restless? Why are we weary? Why can't we find this peace that all of us are looking for? We're busy, we're fearful, we overwork ourselves, we overcommit to things. And it's because we have this lingering feeling that we're just not enough. We're not good enough, we're not living up. We're constantly trying to prove ourselves. We're constantly trying to prove that we are valuable, that we are worthy. We're trying to prove it to ourselves, to this little voice in our head that continues to say, you're not enough. To these people in our lives that continue to say, you're not enough. There is something within us that knows that we should be here. We should be this person. We should be accomplishing these things. We should be doing these things, and yet we're not. We're falling short. It's this intuitive feeling that we're not who we should be. And when we realize that we're not who we should be, whether consciously or subconsciously, it fills us with anxiety and worry and fear and guilt and shame. See, one of my, one of my biggest fears is that I'm going to fail as a pastor. Not just like morally fail, but just like not be any good at it. Like I'll, I'll, I'll wake up at, you know, 50 something and go, wow, for the last however many years, I've really just not done much. I've kind of failed as a pastor. That's one of my biggest fears. And see, that's the fear that so many of us live with, is that we're going to wake up and realize we're just not good enough because we haven't accomplished. We haven't become. We haven't achieved. The second assumption Jesus makes is that you are already yoked to someone or something else. For a second there, you thought I was just going to say you're already yoked. And you're like, yeah, I am. (laughs) No, you're not. So uh, this is not familiar language for us because uh, we don't live on a farm, or at least most of us probably have never been on a farm. And so a yoke you may have seen maybe in like a country western bar or restaurant, okay? And so it's like this big uh, crossbar piece that's usually made out of wood and then it has kind of like a collar that's attached to it and then they put them on like mules or oxen or something like that and then they hook them up to a plow, right? And so it's, it's supposed to, within Jesus' context and what he's saying is, is that it is, um, it's like being, being burdened, being attached to, weighted down by something, And the assumption that Jesus makes here is that each one of us are burdened. We're yoked by something or someone. That there is no such thing as total freedom. We say, we're free, we get to do what I want. And he says, no, you're not. Freedom is an illusion. Every single person has something or someone that they serve. That it's its master, that it's its value that makes you feel worthy. And it's because of our restlessness and our uneasiness of knowing we're not who we should be, knowing that um, we're not feeling worthy and not living up, that we go out and we spend our entire lives trying to prove ourselves. Prove ourselves to that voice in our head, prove ourselves to the people around us, prove ourselves to God and why we should be worthy of his love. And so we put this incredible burden upon our shoulders to prove that we are worthy and we are valuable. And Jesus says, you are never going to achieve enough, you're never gonna make enough money you're never going to have the best house or car or give your kids everything that they ever wanted or have a perfect marriage or be liked by enough people to be able to feel that worth that you're trying to achieve. And actually, the thing that will end up happening is if you put on this burden, whatever this burden is, that's going to make you feel worthy, it will end up consuming and destroying you in the end. See, here's what will happen. is first or one, or one of these things will happen, or all of them, is when we put this burden on, we are now constantly having to prove ourselves and perform. So I've, uh, I've been paddleboarding twice. I don't like it. But when I went paddleboarding, one of the times was I went with a friend of mine, he was really good at it, and, uh, and he's like, hey, let's go, and we can go out in the ocean, and then we can surf as we paddleboard. I'm like, one, I don't surf. Two, I don't paddleboard. Three, I don't like the ocean. But I guess we'll go. And so we go out there, and we're going, and it was really, really choppy, and if you've ever been on a paddleboard in choppy waves, it is exhausting, right? Because I'm just trying to, like, stay afloat out there. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like those people at the gym where it's, I saw a girl I felt so bad for. Her. She was at the gym, and this was her first time trying to be on one of those balance balls, you know, and the trainer put her in the middle of the gym in front of everybody, and chose, they're like, okay, now go ahead and squat, and if you've ever done this before, you know this feeling. You go, you know, it's just like, that's weird. I think there's something wrong with this. (laughs) I don't know. And and the problem is, is that um, if you're looking to go and find a a relaxing and restful place, being on a paddleboard or on one of those balance balls is not the way to do it, right? Because it's constantly moving. You're constantly trying to keep up. You're constantly trying to keep balanced. And see, the thing is true with us as well. If you're constantly trying to prove your worth based on your accomplishments or your beauty or who you know or what people think of you or how much money that you have, you're constantly going to have to be working. You're constantly going to have to be moving because that that target is always moving. And so if you want to find rest, those are things that are not going to bring you rest because those things are constantly changing. You're constantly having to try to prove yourself, try to keep up. We end up constantly being in fear Fear of failure. Because if we fail now, if we lose that job or we lose our beauty or we lose that friendship or that relationship, if we lose it, it's not that we have lost that thing, it's, lo- it's that we've lost our identity now. We've lost our worth, we've lost our value. You see people like this all the time who become incredibly successful maybe at a sport or making money, and then when they lose it, they just want to die. Some of them, in fact, kill themselves. Why? Because it's not that they lost their career, it's not that they lost that money, it's that they've lost their worth because they couldn't keep up any longer. See, for me, this is what it looks like is, uh, as a pastor, one of the gauges, and this this is not how it should be, but this is how it is, is one of the gauges of if I'm doing a good job or not is how many people show up. And so when not very many people show up, I will drive home just going, Cody, you are such a loser what are you doing? You should just quit tomorrow. And uh, in fact, pastors have this saying, it's a little crude, but it's called PMS, post-ministry syndrome. When you, when you walk away from a ministry event, and if it hasn't gone well especially, you're just like, I never want to do that again. I feel like I'm such a loser. I, this, this, I just want to, there are so many Mondays that I just want to quit this job <laughs> because I just walk away going, what am I doing Especially after I, like, re, you ever re, uh, revisit conversations that you have with people and then you go, oh my gosh, what was I saying? That was, oh God, that was so dumb. Think about doing that in front of hundreds of, or thousands of people. I revisit it going, oh my gosh, what did I just say to these people? And it's because I struggle with trying to find my worth and value in how I'm doing my job. And this is pretty typical, I think, of people. And so what is the thing for you? What is the thing that you find your worth and your value and that you're building your identity on? Here's the other thing that will happen is it will probably end up destroying either us or someone that we love. See, the person or the thing that we allow to determine our value and worth will end up collapsing under uh, uh, under the weight of that because it can't sustain it. It wasn't built to sustain it. So if you build all of your value and your worth on your job, what's going to happen is um, you are going to have to give up pretty much everything because your job doesn't just say, okay, that's good, we're good here. No, no, it keeps asking for more time, more energy, more attention, more of your focus. And what ends up happening is you go, okay, this is my identity, so I can't stop. I have to keep working, I have to keep achieving. And so we keep doing that, we keep doing that, keep doing that. And as you spend more and more and more time trying to achieve, you spend less time with your relationships. There goes your family, there goes your marriage, there goes your loved ones. I was talking to a guy this week who's a friend of mine, and he works at um, a large investment firm. I don't know much about investment firms, but I've heard that it's like a big deal where he works. And these guys are taking home millions and millions of dollars every year. So I was asking him, well, what do you want to do? Like, obviously, that would be pretty cool. Like, you, you make a great uh, salary, but you could obviously continue to move up the ladder and make more and more and more. And that opportunity is there. And he says, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I said, why? He says, because if you want to operate at that level, you have to give up everything. You don't have relationships, you don't have a family, you don't have anything because it requires you to be there on call all the time. He says, that's not worth it. And see, that's what happens is people end up sacrificing their relationships for their job. Okay, but maybe your thing is my whole identity is based on my relationship. It's a spouse, it's a boyfriend, it's a girlfriend, whatever. You know what happens when your worth is, is, is completely based on a relationship, on a person? is you end up becoming dependent on that person. And if they're dependent on you, you are codependent. And you know what happens to codependent relationships? They implode. They're a disaster. They are unhealthy. And so because you put so much weight on that relationship, it cannot bear that weight, and it will end up collapsing under the weight. This is true of everything in our life, that we continue to try to make uh, the thing that makes us valuable. It ends up failing under the weight, Uh, Of our expectations and our hopes. Number uh, three is worth and value are assigned and not earned. So value um, is an interesting thing. And when we're talking about economic value, I think it's the easiest way. So uh, I have an iPhone here, and an iPhone is and is not valuable. So how many has anyone uh, had like an iPhone since the first generation till now? Is anyone? God bless you. Okay, good. I see that hand. <laughs> Sorry, as an old church thing. Okay, uh, what's funny is I have these things laying around my house everywhere, right? Like they are all over the place. And at one point they were super expensive. I had insurance for them and like, oh my gosh, I was super amped on it. And now like I literally use them as a doorstop. Why? Because value is not inherent to this. Value is, is, is something that is given to this. It's, some, it's, it's what someone is willing to pay. And so if I were stranded on an island where there's no cell service and uh, there's no charger or whatever, how much would this be worth to me? Zero dollars, just like my old iPhones are to me right now. Why? Because it's not inherently valuable. It's what someone is willing to pay for it that makes it valuable. And so what makes us valuable? What makes us valuable? Is it our careers? Is it who we know? Is it our relationships? Is it our beauty? Is it our wealth? No. It's the same as our phone. It's what someone is willing to pay for us. And so what's the most someone is willing to pay for for all of us? See, Jesus answered that question on the cross. God said, I am willing to pay the highest possible price. I'm going to give you my son. And that's what makes us valuable. Did he do it because we're so good and we're good people and we've achieved so much? And he just says, you know what? You've been working so hard. I'm going to to send my son for you. No, no. He did that because we were so messed up, because we couldn't earn it, because we couldn't do anything to to deserve his forgiveness, for him to sacrifice his son. He did it in spite of all the things that we have done. And so why do we keep believing that our worth and value is going to be found in what we can do? See, the whole point of the gospel is this, is that our worth is not found in what we can do or what we cannot do. It's found in what he has done for us. Jesus says, instead of carrying this this burden of trying to earn your value and your worth, why don't you instead take my yoke upon you? Because it's light, it's easy, it's comfortable. It's the only thing that's not going to end up destroying you in the end. And he offers us this rest. And the rest is something that, um, when we think of rest, we think of lying on a beach just love and life, right? Ah, oh, that sounds nice right now. You guys aren't here. I'm um, like, probably Amy and I are getting a massage, and just there's the beat. Anyway, okay, I'm back. Um, but The rest that he talks about is a peace and a calm that is despite your circumstances. So like, it's like this. It's like all this chaos is happening around you, and it's just craziness, and maybe it's good, and maybe it's bad, but he he offers us this peace that underlying all of your circumstances, whatever's happening up here, the foundation is going to be secure because you are resting in him, and you have your peace and your, your hope in something that is beyond your circumstances. It's beyond achieving. It's beyond what people think of you. It is something that is secure, that is never changing. He says, that's the kind of soul level rest that I'm offering you right now. A rest that even if, if life gets crazy, you can still find peace and hope in those moments. And I, uh, you know, there's no better place to see this, and this is a little bit morbid, but there's no better place to see this than at a funeral, I've been at so many funerals. I've done so many funerals. And I'm telling you, the difference between a person who is a Christian and not at a funeral is enormous. Because the person who is a Christian, although they are upset and although they they are hurting, they have this peace about them. They're not happy. They're not like, duh, you know, I drank the punch and everything's okay. No, no, no. They understand. They acknowledge the reality of the problem. But. They still have hope. They still have a peace, a calm to them versus the person who is not a Christian who goes, I don't know what happens. Maybe there's a heaven. Maybe he's playing golf. I don't know what's going on. And, and they're a mess. They have no peace because it's all based upon their circumstances. See, Jesus says, why don't you come to me and I will give you rest? Why don't you take your yoke or my yoke upon yourself? Now, there's a clarification that you need to make here is Jesus is, on one hand, freeing us from having to prove ourselves, which is incredible. However, he's not just saying, so now be free, be totally autonomous. No, 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 He's saying, I'm freeing you from this heavy burden, and instead I'm putting this other burden upon your back. It's light, it's easy, it's comfortable, it's me. Because total freedom and autonomy is something that is not actually possible, it's not logically possible for us to do whatever we want, whenever we want. We have to live by some constraints. And so Jesus says, if you live according to my, my constraints, you are going to have the lightest burden. It's a comfortable one. It's one that is not going to destroy you at the end. So he says, when you, when you put my yoke upon your shoulders, you now are following me. You're going to according to Riley. So in in um, in Jesus' day, there was teachers and there was disciples. And so for us, the way that we learn is we go to college or we take an online class or we go to high school or whatever. And we go in there and we may or may not listen to the person and we may or may not like them, whatever. But if you wanted to learn in Jesus' day, you had to become someone's disciple. And to be someone's disciple meant that you have given up complete control of your life and you are now following them you serve them, they dominate pretty much everything in your life, you do whatever they tell you to do. And Jesus says, if you want to find rest, then you have to become my disciple. You have to follow me. I'm not just freeing you so that you can run and go do whatever you want to do. No, no, no. I'm freeing you from one burden so that you can take this burden, this discipleship burden, onto your shoulders. And this is totally counter-cultural to what we believe freedom can look like. But, It makes sense. Let me use my kids as an example. Um, Not that I'm not picking on them enough today, but my kids. My kids believe that they will be most free when they get to do whatever they want to do. Right? When daddy stops telling me what to do and I get to do what I want to do. I get to run around. I get to throw food all over the place. I get to hit my brother. I get to do whatever I want to do. That's what freedom looks like. But you know what real freedom looks like? Real freedom looks like listening to daddy because daddy knows some things that you don't know. Daddy has some resources that you don't have. He has some insights about you and the world that you don't have. And so if you really want to be free, you need to listen to dad because dad's going to help you avoid some pain and some suffering and some consequences in your life that you don't have to have. And so real freedom looks like the constraints of a loving father, not autonomy. That's what Jesus is offering us here He says, if you want to find true freedom, then you need to take my yoke upon yourself. Now, here's the test, and I want to end with this. Here's the test. You can tell the level of your trust in God by how well you're able to rest. When you sit alone by yourself at night, and you're reviewing your life, and you're thinking about what's going on, are you able to find a soul-level rest or not? See, some of us, we don't, we don't believe in Jesus, we're not sure about this, and so we would say, no, I don't have that rest at all. And this passage is an invitation, an invitation for you to come and to be in a relationship with Jesus so that you can enter into this soul-level rest. Some of us are restless. Restless. See, we would say that we're followers of Jesus, but we're still restless. So like this week when I was sick, I couldn't sleep. I'd wake up every two or three hours. I was tossing and I was turning and I was uncomfortable. I never got into that like deep, like REM sleep, that real rest. I was restless. And some of us are Christians, and yet we haven't experienced this rest that Jesus is talking about here. And I think there might be two main reasons why we don't experience this rest. One is because we have a lack of repentance. We cannot experience God's rest until we have a conviction of the sin of our lives. It's not simply that we understand that we're sinners and that we've made some mistakes and that God doesn't like when we do X, Y, and Z. No, it's unless you recognize your sin for what it is, unless you recognize how wicked and desperate your heart is, you are never going to be able to enter into this this deep soul rest. Because it will always be this, like, lingering ailment that you've never fully dealt with before. So, uh, if you've ever had a toothache before, I've had a couple cavities, a few root canals, fun stuff like that. You have, when you have a toothache, if it's not too extreme, you have this just lingering, aching pain. And you can go a long time without dealing with it. Like, I've avoided going to the dentist for, like, five years, six years now, okay? It's coming quick, though. I'm going to need to go. Because... Even if you have a, this lingering pain, you can avoid it. You can continue to push forward. It's not going to be the best life. You're not going to enjoy it, but you can you can manage it. And some of us have this lingering pain of sin in our life in which we have this regret, regret and this, this shame and we have this, this lingering pain because we know that we are not living the way that God wants us to. And we can ignore it and we can we can actually... Dole the pain a little bit, but we have this lingering ache that won't go away. It's because we refuse to actually deal with it because we're afraid. We know it's going to be painful. I avoid the dentist because I know it's going to have to get worse before it gets better, and I don't want to have to do that. Some of you know that you're going to have to deal with your stuff. You have to deal with your sin. You haven't entered into the rest because you refuse to deal with This stuff that you know God's against. You're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You're addicted to porn. You refuse to give your money, your schedule, whatever it is. You know know that you're withholding something from God. And you can't enter into that rest until you give it up. And yes, it's going to be painful for a little while. But if you ever want to experience that deep REM soul level rest, you're going to have to have this little bit of pain in order to enter into a time of rest. The other of us, we just haven't fully trusted God and we're unwilling to let go. We continue to white knuckle this life and we're going to stay in control and we're going to earn this. We are going to make ourselves worthy. We're going to make ourselves valuable. We're going to prove to people. We're going to prove to God. And yet, we have to realize that Christ came to do everything that you and I know that we should do but we can't. And the moment that you realize that you're not impressing God, you're never going to do enough to impress other people or to make those voices in your mind go away, that you are somebody and you are worthy, the moment that you realize that, and then instead of looking to yourself for your worth, and now you begin to look at Jesus and what he has done for your worth, then you will begin to enter into this soul-level rest See, what's interesting is so many Christians, it's it's not their sin that ends up keeping them away from God. It's actually their best deeds that keep them away from God. It's them continuing to believe that they're a good person and that they can become a better person and they're going to become a good enough person that they will make God happy with them. And God's going, see, it's not just the bad stuff that you do that's keeping you away from me. It's you trying to continue to be good enough that keeps you away from me. And so we have to realize that it's not about us. It's about him. It's about what he's done. It's about us understanding that we can do nothing, good or bad, that's gonna make us worthy. And so then when we realize that, we get to enter into his rest. And so we have to stop trusting in ourselves and begin to trust in the creator who not only created us, but redeemed us and calls us worthy. Let's pray. Lord God, we... uh, We thank you for um, the insight, these words of wisdom that you have put into uh, the scriptures that you have given to us, Lord God. It's crazy how you understand our hearts uh, so much more than we understand our own hearts. Uh, Thousands of years ago, you you knew what we would be struggling with today. That these words are self-authenticating; that they reveal the truth and the reality of who you are because of just how profound and insightful they are, Lord God. And so, Lord, we just pray that not only um, would we be in amazement of how well you know us, but that we would take your offer seriously, that we would be people who could enter into this deep, soul-level rest, despite our circumstances, that we would stop having to try to perform and stop always having to try to earn, and we would just be satisfied in knowing that you have done everything on our behalf. And so, Lord God, we love you. We thank you. to your name we pray, amen.